We're all influenced by others in our work, whether we recognize it or not. So on today's show, I sat down to talk to Chris Ware about his influences. My name is Chris Ware. I'm a cartoonist slash graphic novelist slash writer slash kind of artist. I live in Oak Park, Illinois, and I've been drawing comics my whole life. I'm Liam Garrity. It's time to meet your maker. Excuse me. Oh, meet your maker. I was 18 when I read Jimmy Corrigan, The Smartest Kid on Earth by Chris Ware. I really had never read anything like it. It was so alien to anything I'd been exposed to before. So much so that I just kind of assumed that this guy, Chris Ware, couldn't possibly have any influences. His work was so unique. It was only later when I grew up and realized that those two things didn't have to be independent of one another. That from a recipe of influences, you could serve something utterly new. I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, which is right in the very middle of the country in every way. Yeah, I think it's the largest city in Nebraska. I was reading superhero comics by the time I was in second grade, probably due to the fact that I was watching reruns of the Batman television show after school with a friend of mine. Batman, the Coast Guard. There's a drifting submarine two miles east of Sandy Nose Lightship. And then I think I got into comics from that, so it was kind of a reverse infection, I guess. I didn't really read comics as much as like trace the pictures of muscled men and put my face on top of them in new costumes. So it was like a way of reinventing myself. It wasn't the superhero comics that affected me as much as the collections of Charles Schultz's peanuts that were in my grandfather's basement that he'd gotten from the syndicate that I really got into because they felt like real people to me. There was something about them that just had a real lively, believable quality and that world seemed so real to me and this this sort of psychological tension of Charlie Brown feeling like he'd never have any friends and Linus and they just seemed like real human beings that lived on those little pages. When you have emotional problems, it is usually because you have no outlets. You need emotional outlets. I need emotional outlets. What kind of emotional outlets would you suggest? Well, actually, you know, Peanuts was always sort of a, as my friend Ivan Brunetti would put it, a haiku. It was always a four-panel strip. I mean, that was the defining character. So that's why Schultz got the, the strip. It was designed to be a space-saver strip. And so it was there. All of the strips were always in four panels, like little poems. And then the collections then were a collection of those little poems that then might add up to some sense of a story or a narrative. So, But they were never longer stories except in the ones that Schultz didn't draw that were published in comic book form. So between that and, like, what would you say came out, like, in terms of, like, I'm thinking of Tintin, or would that have been, a, like, a, a big influence when you were growing up as well? It wasn't a big influence, but it was serialized in some kids' magazine that I think my mom subscribed to for me. I think it might have been called Cricket, but I could be wrong. And it appeared in black and white in broken-up form, and I found it very, very disturbing. I found it 
really upsetting, and I'm not sure why. There was something very... I think it was its complete lack of female characters or something about it just seemed odd to me, and I couldn't put my finger on it. And maybe it was... There's something about it that's very European that doesn't quite translate necessarily to the to the American kid mindset. So there's a there's a Tintin biographer named Benoit Peters who I met a number of years ago who writes about comics and back way back when when they were planning the Tintin movie with Steven Spielberg he said Tintin must be a girl it won't work any other way and I thought like that's genius that's true that's how the strip works you feel through it in this very strange circuitous way it's very weirdly pre-sexual in a way but then it has these like I, you know, Captain Haddock and stuff. It's very strange strips. So when you really think about it, so, but unfortunately they didn't do that. It was all computer CGI. So anyway. When you were in school, were there any particular books that would have made you realize again about narrative or about the possibilities of what you could do with narrative? I think it was the discovery of Raw. I read a lot of underground comics. as That's how I found Robert Crumb when I was a teenager, discovered that stuff then, and was completely blown away by it, as every cartoonist is when they find Robert Crumb and Art Spiegelman and Charles Burns, Gary Panter, Mark Beyer, Linda Berry then later on, too, who really changed my life. And she was the one who really was able to take the internal voice and take it out and turn it into a fictional voice and I think in a lot of ways like our generation my generation of cartoonists owes our lives to Linda because we sort of in the same way that we kind of draw using Chrome and, and arts sensibilities we use Linda's voice whether we were aware of it or not and then at the same time the early newspaper cartoonists like Windsor McKay and Lionel Feininger and especially George Harriman who was uh, the master of us all. I mean, I feel nothing but an ungrateful thief of the entire history of comics and all the cartoonists that are alive who have very graciously been friendly to me, even though I've ruthlessly mined their work and you know, taken bits and pieces of everybody's, everybody's work and tried to find a way to make it work for myself because I, I never felt like I had an approach that was truly mine. It's sort of an accumulation. Or, and that, in a way, those sort of came from my admiration for Leonardo as a little kid and seeing that he was, he kind of really did that too. A lot of artists really do that. You try to take the most, the things that affect you the most deeply and that might be from two differing places and try to reconcile them. That's sort of, that's sort of the job of the artist. You know, it's not to necessarily, it is partly being yourself, but it's also trying to gather all of the leads and tie them up and to find a new way of doing something that then the next person saying it can take one your your single strand and then take the other ones and put them all together in other mediums what will be your influences in maybe film or music or this is where I, I always, like, I'm going to forget so many people. I actually made a list in my last, the, the monograph book, just to try to collect them all into one place, because I always forget. But in writing, certainly Tolstoy and Chekhov, John Updike, Dostoevsky, more recently Richard Wright, James Baldwin. And in music, as a little kid, I listened to a lot of Beethoven and Bach. I really like Arvo Pärt. Uh, 
oh gosh, a Russian composer whose name is immediately escaping me just simply because I was trying to remember it, uh, Vladimir Martinov. So yeah, it's probably not good for me to try to remember everything here. It's, I don't have a list in my handy, not a laminated card in my wallet or anything. So, Stately, plump Buck Mulligan came from the stairhead, bearing a bowl of lather on which a mirror and a razor lay crossed. A yellow dressing gown, ungirdled, was sustained gently behind him on the mild morning air. See, this is why I shouldn't have answered your earlier question, because I would consider Ulysses the best book ever written in the English language, and I would consider him one of the very greatest writers, and you asked me who I was, you know, and I didn't even mention him. So, And I didn't mention how I heard about him, which was reading the lectures on literature by Vladimir Nabokov. I'd heard of Ulysses, but reading Nabokov's lectures about Ulysses made me want to read Ulysses, which I now have twice or maybe three times, actually, at this point. So, well, I mean, it's funny that here it is a hundred years later, and we still can't find the words to describe the greatest use of words ever. It, it's, I mean, I think fundamentally it's writing from the inside out as opposed to the outside in. And he captured the feeling, not only the structure in his various chapters of consciousness, but the texture and feeling of consciousness. Do you feel like when you're reading that, that you are in that sort of mire of experience and of memory and of everything that goes into making what we think of as experience, which up until that point was sort of a he said, said, she said, they were born here, this is what happens next. That's not what life is at all. That's not what experience is. That's not what consciousness is. And he was able to pin down on paper the vast panoply of experience in a way that nobody, I think, ever had and really hasn't since. There's really no writer who's gone beyond that or writers who have taken bits and pieces of it and expanded on it, sort of opened them up. But I can't think of anybody who's done it so in so many different ways and in such a concise, concentrated, and engaging way. You know, it's not just, it's not junk. It's, it's truly life as on the page in a way that had never been presented before. So, I mean, he's certainly a, you know, a standard by which one should try to judge oneself and, you know, quite harshly. You know, I am always, I always come up against like, is it better to try to represent or try to recreate that texture of experience? Or is it better to suggest it and then allow that to formulate in the reader's mind? There's really two different approaches to doing it. And he does both. But if anybody does the first better, I don't know who they might be. So I, I try to aim for both myself, too. But it's uh, difficult. Stephen Dedalus, displeased and sleepy, leaned his arms on the top of the staircase and looked coldly at the shaking, gurgling face that blessed him, equine in its length, and at the light, untonsured hair, grained and hued like pale oak. You know, we hear on the news every every June, you know, about great celebrations in Dublin and people, you know, going to pubs and reciting the book, which is such a beautiful thing. I can't imagine that happening in Chicago around any writer. So, And it's such a weirdly unpretentious way of celebrating what is widely considered one of the most pretentious books ever written, even though it really isn't. It's just, it has that reputation. You know, it's such a really heartwarming way to to, you know, because it really reflects the way he wanted to be seen, too. Like he, in his letters to his his literary agent and to his various publishers, he really asked for publication in the cheapest format possible, like the cheapest French novel and at a level that everybody could, could afford it. So to have people reading it at a pub is just, I hope he's, there's some, if there's a possibility of consciousness living beyond the husk of the body that he's aware of that. Mm-hmm. 
I'm sure people come up to you all the time and, and say, oh, you know, you were probably a big influence. How does that make you feel? Well, it's very flattering. I mean, and it's, it's certainly if somebody tells me and sometimes I'll see something and I'll think that it looks like something I might have done, but then I'll think I'm crazy and I'll have imagined it or something, and I probably did, you know. So that that's the, the scourge of being, you know, a shut-in, I think, or something. So you have to, you know, that's uh, that's the opposite of of what one should think really so but I'm always very flattered and I always feel like well I'm you're not really necessarily responding to what I've done it's like the accumulation of different artists who you know who have influenced me too so in a way that's the nice thing about it because the you know each person is a product of of all these great and lovely things in in all sorts of different mediums Mm -hmm. yeah I think that's true i mean that's you just have to you know there are going to be certain things that are going to move you as an artist and certain things that you're going to feel are just false you know and what i think of as false is definitely not what a lot of people think of as false and i don't know what why that is i you know i'm not sure if that's like a cultural bias on my part or if i'm sussing something out that nobody else is noticing which is probably highly unlikely so um as a young artist you simply have to trust your own uh responses to things 70% of the time and then 30% of the time let stuff in that you don't trust and you seriously dislike because your antipathy towards it actually might be indicative of a particular awareness of something that's really important so and you'll either decide that'll either have an effect on you or you'll jettison it later like certain artists that I admire now that I didn't in school of kind of you know that's when you get older you know so people that we kind of maybe admire we we don't maybe know huge amounts about them and and whether that's a good or bad thing in terms of now like even like we're doing now having an interview and like people in the future will you know have a wealth of information to kind of find out about their their favorite writers or or cartoonists etc right I, i suppose people would have always assumed in the early days that maybe you know chris ware doesn't do interviews or you know and was that a thing that just came up or was it you know no, I don't mind talking to people. I'm happy to. You know, I frequently repeat myself, I think. But I, um, there's a certain, you know, when you get asked certain questions, you sometimes come up with an answer that will apply and you worry that if you use it, you know, that it starts to take on sort of a mannerist falseness or something. But I try to try to be as honest as I can with everything. Um, I don't know. I mean, my friend Reginald Robinson, who's a ragtime composer, said to me once something really, I thought was really smart about Scott Joplin, who's an American composer, and whose who's biographical details are scanty at best, just truly just breadcrumbs left on the table. And, and this uh, biographer, Ed Berlin, did a masterful biography of him by taking these crumbs and basically assembling the bread back together from these pieces. And Reginald said that people are always trying to figure out what you know, Scott Joplin's life was like, like all they have to do is listen to his music. And really that's what it's about, you know. So it's you're going to find most of a person in their artwork, not in the questions they, they're going to answer, I think. You know, you'll find some things, but frequently those answers are found in the in the artwork that's produced in the quietest moments, you know, so not when a question is being answered, you know. So, and I really, I think, I, you know, I think Tolstoy only did something like seven interviews in his entire life. I mean, it wasn't the thing to do back then, but, and you think, you know, there's a, you find out a lot more from his essays and his novels than you would from any Q&A, <laughs> I think so. Mm-hmm. 
Meet Your Maker is produced and hosted by me, Liam Garrity. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Additional music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions. I also interviewed Chris last year at Offset, a design conference here in Dublin, about his covers for The New Yorker. That interview was filmed and will be available on iloveoffset.com soon. Okay, that's it. I'll be back in two weeks. Thank you.